Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Well, Awakening Church, really excited for this day and, and excited for the conversation that's going to happen. Listen, I would just encourage you to really lean in, but we're, we're just going to let God speak, and I believe God will speak to you today. Amen? Well, Awakening Church, will you help me give the biggest, baddest Awakening Church welcome to Benjamin Watson? Come on, stand on your feet. Thank you. Thank you. Man, you said this was going to be like home, but you didn't tell me about all this, man. You know that there are people right now feeding our children, even the babies. Can we just, can we live here? Or can we just bring them with us? Hey, we, well, we could use them at like 3 a.m. too. We, we got a great kids ministry we? here. Yeah. Hey, shout out to Awakening Kids. Hey, on behalf of everybody, I just want to say welcome back to New England. Thank you, thank you. It's good, it's good to be here. We, um, so we, we, I, didn't, I never thought this would happen, obviously. Never thought I'd be back here. And the interesting thing is that for the last few years, we've been a few other places, New Orleans, a lot of hot places. Um, and so the kids are really waiting for snow. And, and I told them that, yes, it's going to snow, but it's going to snow more than you ever imagined. <laughs> and so the other day, <clears throat> they wake up, we're eating breakfast in the morning, and they look outside in the backyard, and, there's, and, and the, you know, the dew had come down, and it was glistening a little bit. And they're like, is that snow? <laughs> like, that's not even pre-frost. That's like the frost before the frost. But the snow's coming, I promise you. As soon as we landed in July, our daughter said, uh, where's the snow at? I said, it's not here yet, but I promise you it'll be here. So we are, we are excited to be back where it all started. I said, when I first got here in 2004, when I was drafted, I, I moved to, to Boston. I'd never been further north than Washington, D.C. I grew up in Virginia, in South Carolina. Never been past the Mason-Dixon line, right? So I'm flying up to Boston, and I see New York out of my window of my plane. I couldn't believe it. You know, get to Boston with a backpack and a suitcase for the first time when I got drafted. Backpack and a suitcase. I come back this time, and you saw the van with the bus that we pulled up in. I'm coming back this time with a wife of 14 years over here, Kirsten. And uh, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven children. Yes. So times, times have changed, my friend. Times have changed. It's so good. I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm excited to ask you about all of that. You know, uh, you're a 16-year veteran uh, of the NFL, um, Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots tight end, uh, husband, father of seven. It sounds weird to even say, doesn't it's, it? I mean, I was telling, you know, I, I'll let you get to it, but first of all, let me... <laughs> We just kind of set, set, of set some background. Uh, so we, we were talking about kids and everything and how we got to seven. Because everybody always says, did you plan on having seven kids? Like, I mean, no, not really. I mean, not really. So we, the plan was to have four. So my wife and I met in college at the University of Georgia. And uh, we dated for a few years. We got married, actually, after my rookie year here uh, in New England. And we always talked about having four children. So we, we decided we'd wait a little bit to see if we like each other. We're still working that out. <laughs> So she's, she's nodding her head. One thing you don't do when you speak, when you see somebody speaking, look at their wife. And if the wife is like giving the side eye, you know that that guy is not telling the truth. So we're still working that out. Um, pray for us. So 
we waited three years and we started having kids. We went straight two-minute drill. Four kids in four and a half years. Just bam, 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 bam. My precious wife was either pregnant or nursing or both simultaneously for about five calendar, five years. Then we waited a little bit and um, weren't quite sure we done, you know, we got done so quickly. Uh, ha- ha- <laughs> had another baby girl, uh, Eden. She's four years old now. So we have 10, 10-year-old girl, 9-year-old girl, 7- and 6-year-old boys, 4-year-old girl. So then after five, uh, you know, five is strong. Like, you know, I got five fingers, I got a fist, you know, I can knock somebody out. You know, five is strong. You know, five is a great number. Wait a little bit, but, you know, my wife loves even numbers because that way everybody has a friend. So if we go to the amusement park, didn't want anybody to be left out. And everybody need to have somebody to hang out with on the roller, on the roller coasters. So we say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to have another one. And unfortunately for us, we had two miscarriages. And that actually, you know, let us realize that a lot of people in this room, around the world, in this state, are dealing with that. And that's something that many people go through, but nobody talks about. And it was amazing to see how, you know, we went through that and... You know, it it hit me hard, but really hit Kirsten even harder, but how the Lord allowed her to encourage other men and women through that whole process, because that feeling of loss is very, very real. And it's something that I don't think we quite know how to deal with in the body of Christ and also outside of it. So um, side note, if you're dealing with that, know that you're not alone. Um, So we had had two miscarriages, and then uh, we said, okay, we'll wait, and we'll try one more time, and if nothing happens, then we're going to stick with our five. Well, God, God had jokes, <laughs> and we're still odd at seven. Identical twin boys, uh, yeah. Identical twin boys. Um, Asher and Levi, and they're five months old now, and uh, we're still at an odd number, but seven is like the number of completion and perfection. And so we're good at seven. We're holding. I think we're good. We're good. So good. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's so you got, I mean, y- y'all got plenty of room. Y'all got yeah, plenty. We got, yeah, we got two. Yeah. But got, I don't know. My wife saw all those kids coming out. I can't even call it a van. It's like a. It's, it's like when a, you outgrow a Suburban, you got problems. Yeah. Our, our options were limited. You know, we could have went to the short yellow bus. Uh, we ended up getting like the Amazon delivery van. You know, but, but we tricked it out. We got some nice rims on it, you know. Hey, we blacked it out, got tint on there. It looks, it's pretty menacing when it's coming around the corner. And that's so good. That's awesome. And I, I don't know if everyone knows, but you're, you're an author and speaker as well, which is, which is so, so great. And uh, I got a chance to read your book this week. You wrote a playbook for new dads. And I was, I was reading it saying, where was this before I had my kids, you know? Me too. Yeah, this <laughs> But it's so good, and, uh, and I think we'll, we'll be able to talk about that in a little bit. But let, let's start with, with football. When, when did you know that, that this was kind of the sport for you, that it kind of had, uh, you were passionate about it, and you thought, this, this might be my thing? You know, my, my father played football at University of Maryland, and uh, that's where he actually met my mother. And so growing up, I always knew that, you know, I wanted to be like my dad. My dad was my hero, still is my hero, much as like I think your father is for you. Uh, grew up in that type of a home. I really looked up to my father. 
And I remember, you know, even being a young kid and going to different high school games, college games, maybe pro chapels, and my dad would do the chapel for these different teams. And so I was always around the sport, but I knew I wanted to play. So back growing up in Virginia, we would play in the street. Anybody play football in the street? Tackling on the sidelines, right? <clears throat> Tackling on the sideline with this grass, but I still have scars on my elbows from running in the cars. Uh, but we would play in the neighborhood all the time, and I knew I wanted to play. I actually started playing soccer for most of my childhood. My parents wouldn't let me play tackle football until I got a little bit older, so I didn't really play um, full contact until ninth grade. But I always wanted to play. My favorite player was Jerry Rice. I always wanted to play receiver, and I kind of outgrew it. I moved to tight end, so I'm kind of a bigger receiver. But uh, I always wanted to play the game, and so I knew at some point that's what I wanted to pursue. Um, my dad tells a story about when I was a little kid, I would get into the closet, and he would, uh, you know, I would say, Daddy, Daddy, introduce me, introduce me. He'd say, now starting for the Washington Redskins at linebacker number 56, Benjamin Watson. And I'd come running out, ah, you know, so I, football, was always, football was always part of my life. That's awesome. And you were drafted by the Patriots in 04. What was it like coming to that organization at that time? Yeah, so when I got drafted, honestly, I was in South Carolina. My girlfriend, who's my wife at the time, was there. Uh, I had a couple other friends there. I, I didn't know where I was going to be drafted. I, I, like I said, I, I played tight end at the University of Georgia, and I knew that I was ranked fairly high. I had a good combine, but you just never know how the draft is going to turn out. You never know. Um, you see guys all the time think they're going to go high. They don't get drafted. And it really doesn't matter where you get drafted. It's about getting in and then what you do once you get there. And so I'm um, sitting there. It's the end of the first round. That, at that time, the first round was forever. So the draft started at about 12 noon. We didn't even have cable. So my dad bought, got cable just so we could watch myself on the draft. So, so we could watch ESPN. Around 5 o'clock or so, my phone rings, and it's the Patriots. It's Mr. Kraft, and I'm, you know, ecstatic. And do you want to be a Patriot? Yeah, of course. Of course I do. I don't know where New England is, but I do. I want to be, be a Patriot. <laughs> so they said, we're going to draft you, and then I hang the phone up, and we watch it on TV, and everybody goes crazy. I took a lap around the block, you know, kind of a victory lap. And then literally everybody's asking in South Carolina. So where, where's New England? I was, well, it's a city called Boston, but it's also Rhode Island and Connecticut. So we're just pulling out the map and everything. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't own a winter coat. So it definitely was culture shock. And as I mentioned before, leaving the South and coming up here, it, it, so many guys. So in our draft class, there were guys like Vince Wolfork from Miami and uh, you know, we had guys from Florida State, P.K. Sam. We had guys from North Carolina. And all of us are coming to New England for rookie minicamp in May, and we can see our breath. <laughs> and this was the look. It was, it was utter shock. Utter shock. So there's, you know, cultural differences. There's weather. There's food. But then getting into the Patriot organization, um, it, it really – and now that 16 years later – having been on a few other great organizations in the league, um, there's really no, no other place like this. Um, from, from an organizational standpoint, the way that they, the way they run the organization, the, the, the high demand, the way Coach Belichick is week in, week out, the way that there's this steady, even kill, no matter if you win or you lose, he has the same face. <laughs> Whether you had a great game or poor game, the same face. 
and he demands the best. And I think that that permeates the team. There's a, it's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to win in this league. But it's, it's easier to win a game here or there or have a great season or maybe a great two seasons. But dealing with success is just as hard as dealing with failure. And a lot of people, not just in football, but in, in general, have a hard time because when you're successful, you get complacent sometimes. When you fail, you're down on yourself and you're in the dumps. And so, you know, coming now, now looking in retrospect 16 years later, it really was a blessing to, to, to be here from that perspective because I learned a lot about how to be great, not only in the game, but also, you know, there's life lessons from that as well. Yeah, that's so good. So, so through all the successes and, and the failures, how, um, how have you found a good way to overcome a loss, uh, mentally specifically? Because, you know, I found even outside the game, just in life, it seems like sometimes someone can lose and never feel like they can ever win again. How, how, how have you found to, to kind of cope with that? Um, I didn't find how to cope with it probably from our first five years here. Um, I struggled a lot with perfectionism. Um, my father's a pastor, uh, came from a family that a lot of people looked up to. You know, I remember being a kid and people asking my parents for advice and that sort of thing. I put a lot of pressure on myself whenever I used to would make a, a mistake in my personal life, public life. Um, whenever I would struggle with certain sin, I, I struggled to receive grace. It's like grace was okay for everybody else, but not for me. I know better. I got to do better. Come on, Benjamin. You know better. You've grown up in this. You became a believer at a very young age. It's okay to get God's grace works for them, but not for me. And so even on the football field, I felt that way. So there were times early in our marriage, and she's probably nodding her head again, <laughs> that I would, I would come home and I'd have a bad practice or uh, uh, I didn't play very well. And, you know, coach yelled at me, which he does a lot, at everybody. And I would just be a pain to deal with. I would be a jerk. I would feel terrible. Um, my rookie season, I tore my ACL. I missed most of the season. I, I, sat, I watched the Super Bowl from the sideline. I wasn't able to play. Uh, my family came to support me, but because I wasn't able to perform, I felt that my value was so tied to what I did that, that my value was less than simply because I couldn't perform at my job. And we do that a lot in our lives. We attach our value to our performance. And God is saying, no, you have value because I created you in my own image and you have dignity because of that. And we struggle. And so, honestly, it wasn't until year five or six almost in the league professionally to where I allow myself the freedom to fail. And when you allow yourself the freedom to fail, you also allow yourself the freedom to succeed. And you also are really able to experience grace. And so it was a process of going to psychiatrists. You talk, you're going to talk about mental health next week. I've been a psychiatrist several times and psychologist. I had, to, I had to go through that process. I had to have some real conversations with my father. Um, and he was able to tell me that, you know, it was nothing he did intentionally. But when you're always on this pedestal, you're not able to, to, to have those real conversations with his failures. I remember, he, I remember him telling me, the fact that when he was in college, he thought this other uh, girl on campus looked good. And I was like, oh, you thought a female looked good and it wasn't mommy? <laughs> but even something that simple, you know, allowed me to realize, man, he has similar struggles that I, that I have, you know, growing up. And so um, it, 
I love to say that I never struggled, but I really struggled with that. And really, it came down to how I perceived grace. And so that's the big Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace, you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works as no man can boast. That has to become real. And that's how we really deal with failure when we understand our true identity. That's... That's unbelievable. That's amazing. On, on the flip side, you know, you have got to play with uh, the greatest of all time, without a doubt. And uh, no question. Uh, in the quarterback position and probably in the coaching position as well. What, what, what if anything, have you picked up uh, from them uh, that, would, that would be applicable to, to, to us? Like, what, what, what is one of the elements of, of greatness? I think it kind of goes back to what I said before. And it is a continued drive to want to be better. And that has, that, that's very perilous at times. You know, when, when you apply that to your spiritual life or even your professional life, that's dangerous. Because you're never really able to uh, relish the success that you've had. And while, it, while in football and maybe in a professional life, it, it can continue to make you great, it's also important that we are able to say, wow, God, thank you for where I am. Thank you for, you know, the Super Bowls that I've won. Thank you for the gifts that you've given me. And it's important to have that balance. Um, but, but what I have learned is about preparation. And I would say that, um, you know, Coach Belichick, Tommy, um, you know, just the organization in and of itself prepares better than any other organization I've been around on a, on a daily basis. Everybody prepares. Everybody does their film study. Every office coordinator, defense coordinator breaks it down. They do installation every week. We do all those things. But you are never going to be underprepared to play a football game in New England. Now, you might lose because everybody loses at some point. Somebody's going to beat you, you're not going to win them all. But you're never going to go into something unprepared. You are going to know the backup safety that never plays unless three people get hurt. And he's going to ask you that during the week. And you better know it, or it's going to be very embarrassing. So I, I have learned about preparation. You, as a pastor, you can't get up here and just shoot off the hip. Yes, the Holy Spirit is part of this, but you got to be in your word. You got to put in 20 hours to, to give an hour of message, right? Whatever it is you're doing, you can't just fly by the seat of your pants. And so that's, that's something that, that I think has, has, has tra that translates to whatever I'm doing, whether it's being, you know, a husband or a, a father or a teammate or an architect or a plumber or a teacher mother and father, a child, a student, whatever it is, I, I, really, I really learned how, how to prepare. That's awesome. I was, um, <clears throat> I was speaking to uh, my, my friend Troy, the barber, at uh, the barbershop on College Hill. I told you I'd shout you out, and so that's, that's for you. Uh, He's high and tight, Troy. It's nice. <laughs> high and tight, baby. <laughs> And uh, he wanted me to ask you this question. He was saying, you're 38, you've achieved success and, and fame and money, and he was saying, you've got a family, you've got it all. What makes you keep going? 
and, and why, why are you still playing the game of football? That's a good question, because my knees and my wife looking at me like, boy, <laughs> you need to sit down. So for those of you that don't know, I, I did retire at the end of the year. Like, I felt like I was done. Like, this was it. Our season ended pretty poorly. Well, not poorly in New, in New Orleans, but not how we wanted. There was, there was, a, there was a penalty. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> but you football fans know that, you know, it, it, was, it was bad. So anyway, I walked away from the game, and it was good with it. I was done. I was starting to, you know, repair my body after the season and, and going to – to, to doctors and, you know, getting a protocol together. That's why I'm not playing today because I had to serve a four-game suspension when I decided to come back, um, you know, which allowed me to be here with you fine people. Um, but, uh, but part of what – the reason why I decided to come back, I said, you know what, it got to be about April, May, and I said, well, there's two teams I, I would consider playing for. One is, one is here because this is where we started, and I, I know the beast that I'm getting into. Um, but also know that, you know, you're going to have the best opportunity to be prepared to win. Um, and then also maybe staying in New Orleans. We were living in New Orleans, but that wasn't an opportunity. And so when uh, Coach Belichick called and said, hey, you know, this might be a real possibility, um, I looked at it as, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is it. And so w what keeps me going is, is really a, a, a drive to, to really continue to be great, you know. And, and I still feel like the platform is there. And what I, did, what I don't ever want to do is close a door that God is continuing to keep open because uh, whatever we do, and for me it's football, it's bigger than simply football. And our last couple of years, you know, in the league, we said, you know, we want to make as big an impact as we can, you know, uh, internationally, locally, uh, for the Lord, for humanitarianism, for whatever it may be, we want to use whatever platform God gives us for his glory and realize that we don't have a lot of time left. And, and the thing is that, that God, God doesn't, he, he doesn't need football. I mean, he doesn't need the NFL. The NFL gives you some great opportunities, but after football, he can still give you playing opportunities. Shoot, Billy Graham didn't play football. So he doesn't need football, but that's what he's given to me. Um, he's given you other things. And so the goal is to be responsible and be a good steward of it. And I'd love to sit here and tell you that I love 100% of football. I probably love about 15. And that's Sundays. The rest of it is a grind. Training camp is a grind. You know, during the season is a grind. Getting, you know, being, feeling terrible, being hurt is a grind. But that's what God has given me to do. And so I, the reason why I struggle with, with stopping to play Part of it is I've been playing for a very long time, so it's going to be a struggle regardless. I mean, honestly, whenever you walk away from something, you stop doing something that you've done for much of your life, there's going to be an identi identity struggle there. As much as I continually and we continually say, I, do, I play football, it's not who I am, it becomes a big, huge part of who you are. So that's part of the struggle. But the other reason for continuing is, man, God, God's given us, you know, one more year um, in, in a somewhat old but new place to to live for him, and to show people the love of Christ. Awesome. So, so let's talk about that um, a little bit. We're just coming out of a series called uh, Make Jesus Famous, and we believe that we exist to make Jesus famous, our lives, his glory. 
How do you use your platform to, and your influence to point people to Jesus? Well, I think the biggest part of that is real, realizing that we must decrease or he must increase. And we walk a fine line, I think. We walk a fine line between feeling like it's true that we do exist for his glory. God created man and woman to glorify him. Our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God. He's given us all talents and abilities, and we use those talents and abilities, but ultimately, he created us to glorify himself because he's God. He can do that. He can create beings for his own purposes. And so, ultimately, we, need to, we have to realize that. And so, while we do exist to make him famous and tell people about him, we also, on the flip side, realize that he doesn't need us, that we are part of a larger body globally, internationally, throughout all time of believers, and we are simply, it's our turn to carry the torch. And so just in the same way the apostles carried the torch, the same way that the early church fathers and mothers carried the torch, the same way that your father or my father or other people's people in their generation carried the torch, we're doing this and then we're going to be gone. Like our, our time is like this. If you, think you're, if, if you ever think you're too important, ask your kids about your grandfather. Grace, tell me about my grandfather. You see that? I don't know. She doesn't know him. That's it. That's how fast we're here. We're here and we're gone. You're, you're two generations from being forgotten. The greatest quarterback of all times, they're going to they're gonna be forgotten. Everybody has their own generation. Our kids, you know, they talk about LeBron James. We talk about Michael Jordan and have arguments about it. As much as I love LeBron James, like, he ain't Michael Jordan. They're like, yes, he is. Speaking truth today. You know? <laughs> hey, your parents, they talk about Dr. J. Man, he won't Dr. J. So my point is we have to have a realistic view of ourselves. And a realistic view is we exist to glorify God, but none of us is bigger than God. And God doesn't need us because he is, I am that I am. He always has been. He always will be. So it's about perspective. Uh, so good. So, so what, what, is your, what is your story? What, is your, uh, what was the moment where you became a, a Jesus follower and this journey began for you? Well, I became a Christian uh, fairly young. You know, I was around, around six years old when I first really understood through repentance and faith um, uh, about confessing my sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, like I said before, my father played football at University of Maryland. He, he's about, you know, 6'2", about my size. I always say I'm better looking. He always says you have better looking parents. So that's why I'm better looking. <laughs> but when I was a kid, my dad had this, I had this big teddy bear. The teddy bear was about like my size. So I'm about six, six years old. And the teddy bear was about my size. And I'm the oldest of six kids. And my dad would say, Benjamin, you want to fight the teddy bear? I'm like, yeah, yeah, daddy, I want to fight the teddy bear. Before I go to bed, I fight the teddy bear. So my dad would get behind this big life-size teddy bear and, like, box me with the teddy bear. So I would fight back with the teddy bear. You know, I think my dad, you know, he just really wanted to compete, you know, maybe rough his son up, make me tough. I don't know what it was. But one night he said, Benjamin, you want to fight the teddy bear? I'm like, yeah. So we're fighting, and I lost. My, my, my grown dad beat me <laughs> with my own teddy bear. Life-size teddy bear. 
So as the story goes, I go to bed, and my mom and dad said I was in the bed screaming, Daddy, Mommy, you bring that teddy bear back here. I'm not going to bed till I beat that teddy bear. And they're like, this kid has a serious problem. So he brings the teddy bear back out there and lets me win. And in that very vulnerable, teachable moment, he said to me, yo, Benjamin, do you know what would happen to you if you died? Now, I was six, but I would always ask about death. I don't know what it was, but I always, you know, people had died, and I would ask about it. And, and again, I had been in church. I knew a lot of the church answers. I knew about heaven and hell. Um, I was familiar with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. My dad would speak around the country. I would hear all those things. And so he felt the need to ask me that. And I said, you know what? I, I don't know. And he shared with me a very familiar verse, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish from everlasting life. And right there at about six years old, we knelt down and prayed. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin debt and save me from the condemnation and the separation from God that my sin implied. And so that was when I first passed, as the Bible says, from death into life. And so there has been obviously a, a maturing process. There's been a sanctification process that's still ongoing. Um, but that was when I, I first, as the Bible says, passed from death into life when I was very young. So in that process, who have been some influential men and mentors in your life? And and how have they helped you along the way in this, in this pursuit of following Jesus? Yeah, uh, well, the thing about the Christian life is, you know, my dad would say that, that uh, you know, there should be no Lone Ranger Christians. And again, Generation Gap. What's a Lone Ranger? Well, there was a show called The Lone Ranger or something like that. But he's like, there should be no Lone Ranger Christians. And what he meant was that the Christian life is meant to be lived uh, in community. And that there needs to be, you know, you need to have, uh, you know, there needs to be a Paul, there needs to be a Timothy, there needs to be somebody that you're, that you're bringing up below you and somebody also that you are following, somebody that is pouring into your life. And that's kind of the model of discipleship that we see in Scripture. And so when we go off on our own, not that the Holy Spirit isn't enough, not that God's Word isn't enough to keep you, but we are relational human beings, and we work best when we have some sort of accountability or someone that is pouring into us. So number one, for fathers, your number one job is in your house and with your children. And so for me, while none of us are perfect parents, uh, my father was the, the number one. You talk about men that were in my life. It was my father. Um, and then when I left and I went to, you know, University of Georgia, I went to Duke first in Georgia, we had chaplains, you know, chaplains that were people that would, you know, give us scripture and people that would, would, would lead chapel services. And then we had Fellowship of Christian Athletes, different organizations. I actually met my wife in Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Georgia. And so there were always di different groups. Um, becoming a, a, a little bit older, you know, there are different pastors. And now we, we can watch people preach all over. So there's a pastor named Vody Balkum, Vody Balkum, Tony Evans, uh, guys that you know, I, I look up to you guys that when I meet them, I have like, okay, so you have like 10 minutes because I got like a list of questions that I want to ask you right now. Feel free to say no. And you just start asking them stuff because there's so much wealth and knowledge there that they've learned that they can impart to you. And so um, there have been several people, you know, when I left New England, I, I went to uh, play football in a, in a faraway place called Cleveland. And um, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was a free agent in 2009, and 
you know, end up going to Cleveland. Coach Mangini was there, a couple other people from New England. So, again, relationships. So I ended up playing in Cleveland for three years. And we enjoyed Cleveland, um, but there was so much to do in Cleveland that we had, like, three kids in three years because there was so much to do. But, but Cleveland was exactly what I needed in my faith walk. Wow. I was on a team three years in Cleveland. We didn't win very many games. But those, those teams were probably the most spiritually encouraging and challenging teams that I've been on, other than there was a team in New Orleans in 2015. And so it's amazing how God puts you in different places at different times around certain people that challenge you in different ways and stretch you in different areas of your walk that you wouldn't have been before. And you look back and say, wow, I see why, I see why, why we were there. What an amazing place to be at for that specific time in our life. So good. You talk a lot about your father. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, with so many fathers, young fathers, uh, soon-to-be fathers in this, in this place and um, and we have generations of fathers, grandfathers in the church. What would you say to them? What would you speak to them? Something that you think every single father needs to hear. Yeah, well, I would say, um, <clears throat> number one, um, you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect dad. That's so good. That's good. You don't have to be perfect to be the perfect dad. There is a great fear that I found in myself, but also, look, I'm in a locker room with 60 70 guys for the last 16 years. Had a lot of exposure to a lot of different men from a lot of different places, from a lot of different socioeconomic statuses, from a lot of different backgrounds as far as what fatherhood looks like to them, doesn't look like to them. And overwhelmingly, guys want to be good dads to their kids, but depending on what they saw, depending on what they feel, a lot of times they feel they don't have what it takes. You couple that with a society that devalues fatherhood, devalues marriage, devalues the family, and you have this combination of, well, I, I don't think I can do it right, so I'm just going to flee. And we see a lot of that. Not necessarily because the guys just don't want to be there, but they just don't think that they can do it. Somebody's failed them in the past. They don't think they have the knowledge. They think that they're not good enough. They think maybe it's not important because, hey, man, Kids are for the mom. I'm going to go here and work, and everything will work out. They see these recurring images. They get these messages. And so the number one thing is you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect dad. Your, your presence is more important than your presence. Your presence is more important than your presence. You, you simply being there, being there, being available is more important than what you can give them. And that's tough for dads because we show our love a lot of times in what we can provide for our families and for our offspring, which is important. You know, you should be providing for your kids and your wife for their, their, their shelter, their food, all those things. That's all important. But you being there, you, you don't do that and sacrifice you, you, your presence being there for your family. And so that, that's, that's the other thing. And the other thing I would say is that, is that we need you. Like, society needs dads yeah. and men yep. to, like, to do Amen. what they're called to do. Yeah. So it needs, needs to do it. And we all fall short. Yep. We all 
um, you know, are selfish, we're prideful human beings, but society collectively needs men to step up and be men for a lot of different reasons. If you, if you, look, if you look at social ills, there's been studies that have been done about social ills when it comes to teen pregnancy, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to incarceration, when it comes to all those things. When a father is not available, when a father is not home, or when a father that may, maybe they're not together, but he's not actively involved in a child's life, all those statistics go way up. And that has nothing, that, that has nothing to do. Obviously, as believers, we understand who the perfect father is. We model ourselves after God's love for us. We model him after, after his, his justice and his righteousness and the way he disciplines us and still loves us. We model ourselves as that. But even if you throw faith out of the window, secularism will tell you that dads are important because of all the things I just mentioned. So if, if you're about to have a child or you have children or you're, an, you're, you're, you're a parent that's going to adopt, you're a grandfather, whatever role you're in, maybe you're... And the other thing with, with fathers, if I may, is that it's important for us to be willing to challenge other men and, and to get uncomfortable and not feel like, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I don't want to say anything. It's amazing how when we challenge other people, it kind of sharpens us, Right? When you're sitting up here speaking, you're like, man, I can't go home and treat my wife terrible. I just told all these people how they should treat their wife. This is awful. She might, she might go on Twitter and put me on blast. So we need men, we need men that are willing to challenge other men. It's so good. It's so necessary. Awesome. And, and for your children, what's something that you want your children to learn from you and see in your life? Yeah, well, the number one, the number one thing I would want my, my children to learn, um, you know, we, my wife and I talk about that a lot, and we, we have, you know, lived in several different places, um, you know, around the country. We've, we've had some really hard times, especially as of late. It's been really difficult uh, having twins. Uh, you know, that's hard anyway. All you twin parents, God bless you. <laughs> you know, wow. <laughs> So having the twins, but also we've moved, you know, across the country several times, literally across the country. And so we've, we've had some very tough times and we worry, like, are the kids going to be okay with this? You know, they have friends and they're losing them. And we, we really, it weighs on us. You know, it's, 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 we struggle with having friends and leaving. We don't want them to feel that same thing. And we say, you know what, the number one thing we want them to learn is that God is faithful. Yep. Come on. That when you look back over our life, we can see specifically, like those prayer requests, we can see how God has answered prayer time and time and again. We want them to understand that their trust needs to be in him, not in us. We want them to know that mommy and daddy love you, but we are not going to get everything right all the time. And that we will confess to you when we mess something up. We don't want them to think that we are perfect. We are chasing God and they are following us. And that, and that order has to be there. Um, ultimately, we want our kids to know the Lord, bottom line. We want them to have a great education. You know, we say we're moving to New England. It's a lot of good schools. That's great. But you can be educated and go right to hell. Heaven forbid we ever put um, a sports or their education or their comfort above them knowing and following Jesus Christ. Because that's, that's the number one thing we want them to know. And, and within, that, within that, 
We understand there's no perfect formula. Um, there are people, there are parents sitting in here who have walked with the Lord faithfully and their children were in this church or another church and now their children are going doing who knows what. You know, the Bible says train up a child in the way that they should go. The hope is that they will always come back. You, you plant those seeds in there that they will grow. But there's no perfect formula. But what we can do as parents is to be honest with them and to hold our standard high, not what the culture says. What does the word of God say? If, I, if, my parent, if my kids throughout their life, whether they do it or not all the time, because we don't always do it, but if they always know, my mom, and dad, my, my mom and my dad always told me, what does the word of God say? I feel like we've done what we were supposed to do. Well, they always say that the absolute truth is not what my friend says or what TV says or what the culture says or even what I say. It's what the word of God says. And so for you, what's, what's, what's a scripture or a verse that, that you love and that sustained you through your life? Um, there, there have been a lot of different scriptures at, at, at different times. You know, sometimes it's be still and know. Um, sometimes it's vengeance is mine, says the Lord. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, there are different ones at different times. Um, one verse that, that I uh, recently over the last several years, I would say, uh, has really meant a lot to me is in the book of Jeremiah. And, you know, Jeremiah, he's pronouncing judgment. And, you know, it's a really, it's a really, you know, dark time. You know, if you read through the book and there's a, there's a verse in chapter nine, verse 23 and 24, and it says, um, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the rich man boast, or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, come on, come on. and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. And as we talk about what we want our kids to know or what we want to be about, what we want people to know about us or, or kind of our compass in living our life, because we can be involved with a lot of different things, but what's your, what's your mission in life? And that verse talks about, first of all, it talks about humility. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. There's a lot of degrees in here, a lot of education. Who gave you that intellect? Who gave you the mind? Yeah, that's good. Let not the wise man who makes great decisions, who leads large groups of people, who is put in a place of power um, publicly, let not him boast of his wisdom because he didn't get it on his own. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Many people inherit their wealth. Some people earn their wealth through their occupation. Some people, however it happens, but that wealth is not from you. God, for whatever reason, said, okay, you're going to be wealthy. You're not going to have wealth. It doesn't make you any better than anybody who doesn't have any money. You just happen to have more dollars than the other person does. That's all. It can be gone just like that. Then not the strong man boast of his strength. I play football. I work out all the time. You know I said the bench record at University of Georgia? 565 pounds. I was pretty darn strong in college. Now I'm a lot older now. I'm not that strong anymore. But... Those who are strong, we can feel like we need to boast in our strength. Man, I, I, I did this all by myself. God says, let not, let not those people boast in that. Let, if they want to boast in something and be proud of something, let them be proud that they know me. Let them be proud that they're, that they're, identif- that they're, they're connected to me. That's what you boast in. 
Not all this other stuff that is going to fade away anyway. I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. You're not taking none of it with you. It's all staying. So if you're going to boast in something, boast that you know the Lord. Boast that you know that you're, you're, eternal, you're eternally secure. Boast that you know the God who created heaven and earth. Boast in those things. And then it says that I am a God who exercises loving kindness, which the loving kindness word is only attributed in the Old Testament to what God can do. We can be kind, but loving kindness is like special for God. Justice and righteousness. Those are three things that God says he delights in. So in that verse, it talks about, man, I want to delight in the things that God delights in. So as a, as a family, as, a, as an individual, you know, what are things that are kind in my speech and in my actions? What are things that are kind? What are things that are just? Justice in the Bible talks about, you know, giving people their just due, whether that's, whether that's punishment or protection. It's, it's blind. Giving people their just due. It also talks about equity, dealing with people correctly on a day-to-day basis and day-to-day living equitably. Talks about righteousness. Now, that's a word we don't ever talk about again. We don't talk about holiness and righteousness because that makes people uncomfortable. Because ooh, I've seen people wear shirts that say God is dope, right? God ain't dope. If you got that shirt on right now, t- turn it inside out. <laughs> God is holy. You can use that. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. He ain't dope. Okay? There needs to be a certain amount of, of respect and honor when we talk about him. And there needs to be a certain level that we hold ourselves to because he's holy. And we, and, we, and we can't lose that. And so that's a long way to say that verse um, for us has meant a lot. And it also, you know, we all have an opportunity to be involved with, well, I'll just say, you know, in the NFL, we have an opportunity to be involved with a lot of different, you know, uh, initiatives, you know, humanitarian initiatives, people, hey, you want to come and pet the dogs and, you know, adopt a cat. That's great. You want to come plant trees. You know, that's good, too. Trees need to be planted. Um, one thing Curse and I have been involved with a lot is, is uh, sex trafficking, you know, and, and supporting organizations that combat it domestically um, and, and internationally. Um, there are things when it comes to, you know, racism. Um, there are things when it comes to the gospel, you know. But th- that verse, I feel like, has really um, ordered or informed many of the initiatives right now that we want to pour ourselves into because, again, we don't have a lot of time. So what would you say to somebody uh, that's here that's looking for God? Scripture says that you can, you can, uh, that the heavens and the earth proclaim his glory and that you can go outside and look at the stars and you can know that there's a God. He also says, if you search for me, you will find me. He will make himself real to you. Um, he says that, you know, he loves you unconditionally. He says that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He says that his Holy Spirit will indwell in you and that the comforter will never leave you or forsake you. He says all those things because, as scripture talks about, we are separated from him. We are separated from a holy God because of our sin. In the book of Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve a choice. And it says, if you obey me and keep my commands and do what I say, what talks about this fruit, you will enjoy life with me. But we decided not to. And because of that, sin was imputed from generation to generation, 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 generation. Sin was passed down. You, you were born separated from God. If you don't believe me, if you got some kids, they're selfish. Just like you are, but in a different way. 
I'll pull the bottle out to feed, to feed my boys. They're only five months old, but they will fight each other over the bottle. Punch his brother in the face for the bottle because they're selfish. They're sin. Sin separates us from God. And what you need to realize, if you're looking for God, you need to realize that right now you are condemned. The Bible says in, in, in John that we are condemned already. It's not a matter of us deciding, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right with them today or maybe tomorrow. But just not right now. I'm kind of in this limbo stage. No, the Bible says you are condemned already. Jesus came not to condemn. He came to save. Why? Because as human beings, we're condemned already. We're already separated from a holy God. We were born that way. And so if you're looking for him, I would say you will, you will find him. And to keep looking, to keep asking questions. Don't allow Satan to tell you that you're not good enough. You look through scripture, the list goes. Tax collectors, adulterers, selfish, prideful people, murderers. The list goes on and on of people who we consider now to be great men and women of the faith. And it wasn't because of what they did or how they got themselves right before they came to the Lord. It was because the Holy Spirit transformed them once they surrendered themselves to him. And so... You, Satan, Satan will tell you that you're not good enough, that, man, you got to get your marriage together first. Man, you got to get back in your kid's life first. You got to stop cheating on them taxes before you come to God. You know, you got that bad habit with porn and, and alcohol. You know, you got you to gotta get that straight before you come, come to the Lord. He doesn't want people like you. Matter of fact, the church doesn't even want people like you in it. You're, you're, you're not good enough. You're not perfect enough. Jesus, he doesn't have the power to change you. Those are lies from Satan. And so if you are looking for him, my prayer is that something happened today, something happened in this week that, that is, is supernatural and that he comes and meets you where you are because I, I, we know, those of us who know God know that he will and knows that if you continue to seek him, you will find him and that he loves you unconditionally that he loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. And not just to die, but to raise again. And that's the difference. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And he has all power in his hands, and he can change anything that's going on in your life. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.